We are in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and like uh, was said earlier, my name is Christian, and I do get to serve in a community that is fantastic. I, I live with about 1,000 undergrad college students up in Seattle. We're at a Christian university filled with people who love Jesus and are filled with faith and are energetic, and they make me tired, and I love them deeply. And it's the best thing I get to do with my time. It's just such a great community to be a part of. And so um, that's where I'm from is Northwest University. So thanks for opening your doors. Now, you have been in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, um, kind of an on and off relationship, it seems like. I follow the podcast. So it's kind of like a weird college dating relationship. Like some weeks are here, some weeks are not. And so um, now we're back here. We're back in the relationship with Matthew. It'll be a good time um, to look at this text and look at the scripture together. Now, as we open up the Bible, um, I, I just want us to think about this for a moment. As we open up the scripture, and I know we just finished a practice on scripture and scripture reading. Um, it's important to remember that we don't open the scripture just for information. The scripture does not exist just to inform our intellect. It does do that, but that's not the sole purpose. It's also really important to not just come to the scripture for inspiration, you know, pull out a good nugget and like feel good and move on, which don't, don't get me wrong. I'm so thankful that the scripture calls me and wherever I'm at and it speaks to me. It brings life and courage and hope and joy. Amen? Okay, maybe. The, the scripture does do that, but we don't go to the scripture merely for information nor for inspiration. We go to the scripture every time for an introduction to meet somebody, Jesus himself. And so my hope is that as we spend time together in these next few minutes, um, and I say this in our community all the time, the goal when we gather, it's not to go, that was a good sermon, or that was a good worship, or that was a good moment, or that was this or that. No, the time, every time we get together, the hope is that by the time we leave, we go, wow, that's a good God. That's a good God. That's all we're going to do. We're going to look at Jesus. We're going to see if he really is as good as they claim that he is. And I think the answer to that is going to be yes by the end of the night. And so um, I hope tonight for the next little bit you journey with me as we look at Jesus and see how good and kind and compassionate and faithful that he is. Are you ready for that? Sort of ready for that. Cool. We'll take the, we'll take the few. So... Um, that's fantastic, Slay. Um, would you mind, if you're able and willing, would you mind standing to your feet for the reading of God's word? We're reading out of Matthew chapter 15. And hear the words of scripture. Moving on from there, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He went up on a mountain and sat there, and large crowds came to him, including the lame, the blind, the crippled, those unable to speak, and many others. They put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak talking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry, otherwise they might collapse on the way. The disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in this desolate place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked them. Seven, they said, and a few small fish. So after commanding the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. 
They collected the leftover pieces, seven large baskets full. Now, there were 4,000 men who had eaten besides women and children. After dismissing the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of the Magdan. Jesus, thank you that you're here with us. and Thank you that you really are mighty and you're powerful. You're thoughtful. You're compassionate. But, man, you're close. You're here. Closer than the air we breathe. Thank you that we don't have to do a thing to get you here. Don't have to strive or try to get you to show up. You're just close. You're near. Thank you for that. Would you increase our faith tonight? Increase our love for you. Make us people who want you, who draw near to you, who love you deeply. Would you help us to be good hearers of the word, but better doers? Would we trust what Jesus says? Would we love Jesus deeply? And may we follow Jesus well. Amen. If you're younger than your mother, sit down. Some of you will get that later. Does anybody like to people watch? Oh, you're, I got like halvesy answers last, the last kind of gatherings. Y'all are my people. Um, I am a huge, another like quick survey, survey says, um, anyone like Disneyland either? Are my Disney people? Oh, bless God. I had like one over here last, last gathering. Um, I love Disneyland. Love it. I end up there like at least once a year somehow because God's kind to me and, um, and I have other friends who are crazy enough to go to Disneyland with me. But um, I love people watching, and I love people watching in Disneyland. Now, if you go to Disneyland with me, you will quickly learn. Well, actually, I'll just, because we have time. It's the seventh. The first time I went to Disneyland as an adult, which I'll tell you, adult, Disneyland is for adults. It's not just for kids. Like, Disneyland is for you. That is a word. Hear it from the Lord or from me. <laughs> Disneyland is for you. Um, but I remember the first time I went as an adult, I was with a group of my friends. I hope they're listening to this. I'm going to make fun of them. And I... Um, Remember going with them. So I showed up in like just some jean shorts, like a t-shirt, some vans, just something like that, and um, ready to go. And then I look around and see my friends at the gate. They're like, yeah, let's make sure we get there a few minutes early. So we did. And I look around, I look at them, and um, they're all in Nike. <laughs> like they're in, they're in like compression shorts, athletic clothing, like sweatbands, like running shoes, and like, like they're like basically stretching. And I'm like, Oh, God. Like, I, I was not prepared for this. But now I'm that person. So if you go to Disney with me, if you ever want, I love it. I will go with you. I don't even know most of you, but I will go. Just because I like it that much. I should like you, but I definitely like Disney. And so, um, <laughs> what am I doing? And so, I, um, but I'm that person now. Like, whenever I show up to Disney, we're there before the door is open. Before that little chime goes off, I'm like, I am in running shoes. And if you're not here to run, if you're here to saunter, um, I'll saunter around 1 p.m. But for the first hours, for the price of this ticket, Chris is about to run. Like, I'm getting every... <laughs> dollars worth because this mouse is not having any trouble paying the light bill at Disney. That mess is expensive and worth it. And so we do Disney. I really enjoy it. I like people watching at Disney. And so um, I spend the first few hours running with one of my friends. Her name's Brenda. It's a great time. We run through Disney. We have a whole plan. That's not what we're here for. But we do this thing. And then about middle of the day, I typically like getting a churro because churros are great. Is there any other reason to have a churro? And so um, at Disney, we get a churro and like to people watch. And I remember people watching one time and enjoying. Now, do you, you know all the family, like Disney has tons of families, and you see these families, and some of them have the, back, the, the kids with the backpacks, leashes thing, which is your prerogative to do as a parent if that's your parenting style. Like, do what you got to do, boo. And so um, I, I, that's not my family, though. My dad is black, and he's from Oakland, California, and my mom is also black and um, with black hair. And um, 
but from Ethiopia, she's an immigrant. And so I'll just say it's not in my family's nature to parent that way. But there's room in the kingdom of God for all sorts of people. And so that's how some people parent their kids. Um, that's not how my family did my babies. My dad, my dad's so great. My dad, the way he, he parented us, he's like, if you can't hear my voice or see my face, you are too far. Fear of God right there. That was it. No leash required. And so um, spare the rod, spoil the child. That's my dad. And so some of you will get that later. Anyway, moving on. So my dad, that's how he'd parent. I remember going to Disneyland, seeing all these family with leashes. I think it's hysterical. That's great. Um, I remember watching this one kid and his dad. So the kid's on the leash thing. Dad is, he, he's, he's my people. He's eating a churro living his life at Disney, because his kid's probably exhausting him. He's just eating this churro like, I don't care about this baby right now. I'm just going to live my life. And the, 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 the child's tied to him, so you're fine. So, but all of a sudden, like, you can see the kid over here, and the kid's getting kind of like, you know when kids get kind of fidgety? They're just bored, and they're just like, ah. So the kid's doing the like, ah, thing. And you can tell, I'm like, this kid's about to make a run for it. And this dad is like, I'm paying no mind. I'm going to eat my churro, live my life. But now the kid makes a break for it, just like prison break goes. <laughs> He's like, I will be free at last, free at last. And he is running for it. And all of a sudden, kid you not, I watched the dad just do this. <laughs> now that's funny in and of itself. But what's even better is that this baby wasn't wearing a backpack leash, it was an anklet leash. It was ankle to ankle. <laughs> So this dad, one more time, does one of these, and this baby starts running just straight down, just boom. <laughs> Hits the ground so hard, has a little bounce, it's okay. Dad does not blink, does not hesitate. Child does not cry, this must have happened before. <laughs> Kid gets up, dad just stands there, eats his churl. I walked over to the dad, I was like, you, sir, are an American hero. <laughs> you, my friend, are goals right here at Disney. Whatever. I like Disney, though, and I like people watching, but it's really interesting because at Disneyland, it's supposed to be the happiest place on earth. Magical. Churls galore. It's a great time. But there's so many families that end up at Disneyland and they argue. They're just like, ever been on vacation and like an argument starts on vacation? There's nothing worse. I am not taking paid time off for this, you know? And so I'm at Disneyland and I'm like, no, 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 you need to take this mess like outside the park. This is the kingdom of God right here, and you are not bringing the devil's work. You need to take that anger and hostility, that negative energy, the bad vibes out there. And so families are just kind of doing their angry thing. But I like to watch people as they argue, even this Valentine's Day weekend. I was out with my grandma because I'm a good grandson. She's 86, and she drives, and she's dope. And so we went to a concert. And so me and grandma, I'm for real, we went to a concert on Valentine's Day, me and my grandma. It was great. But I'm watching even on Valentine's Day, and I'm thinking about Disneyland where I was there a few weeks ago. Just all these families are arguing. And when I'm watching these people argue, I realize that most arguments typically happen from some sort of misunderstanding. Ever been there? Have you ever been like in an argument, you're heated, maybe you're with whoever you're in a relationship with, if you're in that, and um, you're like in an argument and like someone, they're, they're kind of giving you the like, you know, they're giving you the rundown, they're having it, and you're standing there with the kind of like, you're just, you, you already have your argument ready, you have a thesis in your mind, you're about to let them know, and you're just standing there just like, they're, they're giving it to you like, and then they say one thing, and all of a sudden, they like break down your whole rationale for your argument. No, is that just me when I'm arguing with people? Just me? Nope. Okay, thank you. Someone's with me. And so, 
I love watching arguments for this reason because typically they happen from misunderstandings. Misunderstandings cause huge problems in life and in society, etc. I, I even think about this story uh, with my family. Again, my mom's Ethiopian immigrant mother. Fantastic, raised three boys. Fantastic woman, incredibly strong. I don't mess with my mom. And so I remember one day I was in the car with my mom and we were, um, I was in high school. We were driving to a graduation party late at night. It's me and my cousin in the front. I'm driving. My brother, my middle brother behind me and my middle brother is so kind and sweet. He's very emotional, so he gets like, he just gets worked up about stuff. And then my mom, who also has kind of a short fuse at times, love you mom. And then my youngest brother just living his life in the back. And so I'm driving and all of a sudden I hear, and all the siblings will understand this, I all of a sudden hear my brother and my mom like the, the tone's starting to elevate and they're kind of getting in it and you can hear like the breathing's getting a little heavier and I'm like turning down the radio because I'm like, something's about to happen. <laughs> something's about to happen. It's like older sibling, like heaven. You're like, my brother's about to get chewed out. It's gonna be great. And all of a sudden, I remember hearing my brother say these famous last words and he looked at my mom and he says, mom, just calm down. <laughs> right, that's the right response. Oh my gosh. Black Ethiopian immigrant mother, you just told her to calm down. What do you mean calm down? Like my mom lost it on my brother and that was the last time I saw him. Um, <laughs> but uh, what that goes to show is probably a relatable experience to us all. Misunderstandings cause all sorts of problems. It's easy to misunderstand people when we don't really listen or take time to pay attention. And so often I think that's what happens when we read the scripture where we easily misunderstand what's going on because we move too quickly or we don't pay attention or because maybe it's even more complex than we want to give it credit for. And I know that's the case with me, with Matthew 15. As I opened up Matthew 15, it's one of those texts that I just wanted to gloss over because, well, it's another text where Jesus heals people and feeds people and you're like, seen that before. Free day in the Devo, pass, you know? Just me, you gotta catch up every once in a while. And so you're like, oh, Jesus done that, he heals. Yep, we get it, he feeds a thousands, we get it. And so you skip over when... It's easy to misunderstand Jesus because we don't take the time to really get to see what he's saying and hear what he's, who, what he's about and what he's really doing. And it's so easy with a text like this in Matthew 15. Now, um, I know we've been a few weeks, so let me recap. Matthew 14, we see Jesus and his, bro- his cousin is beheaded, dies. So Jesus goes away and he goes to grieve, which is good to hear um, because that means that we as people, when things are falling apart at times, it's okay to stop and grieve. Jesus is a God who grieves and he gets grief. And Jesus does that. And in his process of grieving, in his time of grieving, he gets away, but the crowds follow him. And what does Jesus do? He's so kind and compassionate. He heals them. He brings healing and restoration. And it says that he feeds over 5,000 people. An incredible miracle. People were amazed. You go from there and you continue on these next chapters. And Jesus then has this story about walking on the water and the disciples kind of freaking out, trying to figure out who this guy is. And you see Jesus He walks on water and they go, maybe this is the son of God. And they're starting to get a clue of what he is. Then next, you get this next story about what's happening with Jesus and his life and this issue with the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus is having these conversations and they're not really sure about who he is and what he's about. Are you changing things? What's going on? And there's kind of this misunderstanding. And then we get to the passage right before this where Jesus goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's this Gentile area. It's this area of people who aren't Jewish, aren't a part of the Jewish faith, aren't a part of serving Yahweh. And he's over here and he goes, and as he's withdrawing to get away, a woman stops him, a Canaanite woman, a Gentile. And she looks at Jesus and they have this conversation. He be- she begs her, she begs him to heal her daughter. And he says this weird comment about, well, no, 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 I'm, I'm not here to feed, feed the dogs. And she kind of like comes back at him. She's like, yeah, but the, even the dogs get the scraps from the master's table. And he's like, okay, I hear you, like, here you go. 
And it's this weird conversation, which basically what he's saying and what's going on, this isn't just like a dog, like a mutt or a stray. He's actually using the language about a household pet that's loved deeply. Um, do any of you have one of my best friends? She has two dogs. They're golden doodles, and um, they're fantastic. Too much energy, but they're great. I love them. Um, Maggie Mae and Ginger Brave, dog names, right? And she is what we would call in um, technical terminology a dog mom. And um, do you, anyone know dog moms? People like, yeah, it's embarrassing, but I love them. And so, um, again, room of the kingdom. And um, she's like the person, she's the dog mom who buys like dog cupcakes for her dogs on, her, on their dog's birthday. Mixed feelings on that, that whole topic. Okay, that's where I'm at too. I'm not sure if it's oh or oh. Um, <laughs> to each their own, room of the kingdom. But there's a situation where Jesus starts opening up and expanding his ministry to Gentiles. Now, what's the big deal with that? Well, first of all, most of us in this room would probably fall into the category of Gentile. It's, first of all, people who aren't Jewish. And so we kind of go with that, and we go, oh, that's cool. Like, Jesus isn't racist, which that comment alone should get an azou- like a resounding amen. amen. Beautiful. Um, but then on top of that, I think this is more, there's more that's going on. This, this Jew-Gentile issue isn't just about ethnicity or nationality or race. There's something more. The very beginning of the people of God, at the onset of God's people, you see this thing happen where God is bringing his people into the promised land, into good things. He's bringing them home. He's bringing them home. And what he does is says, hey, when you get here, when you get home, when you get into the land that I'm promising you, I want you to be careful because there's people who will be around you. And if you're not careful, they'll cause you to serve other gods. And so God, in his kindness, in his wisdom, in his, dare I say, compassion, calls people to not associate and calls his people to not associate with the Gentiles because he knows their hearts are prone to wander. Anyone else? And out of his love, out of his compassion, out of his mercy, he says, wait, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to associate with these people. Why? Not because they're bad by who they are or their ethnicity or their nationality, but because they will lead you astray. He calls them in this situation, in this season, to not associate with Gentiles. And now, all of a sudden, Jesus is walking in, and he's healing and bringing miracles and restoration to Gentiles. But what's the interesting thing about these Gentiles? It's not that they're just from another nationality. It's that they're, they serve other gods. And for some of us in this room, we go, isn't that pretty archaic, like people who serve other gods? Well, actually, just think about it for a moment. It's not that far off. Sure, we don't maybe use temples to serve our gods. But if I'm honest, my city has a god. I'm from Seattle, and the god of my city is success. I mean, I'm in the startup capital, like by my house. I can walk to Google's headquarters from my house. I like just a few more minutes from Microsoft. Amazon's destroying everything and they're awesome because I don't wait for anything anymore. So it's causing me to be impatient, but it's great. But it's right by my home. Truthfully, my house is like, this is the economy and everything because of the success of my city. It's happening so much. I'm more likely to get hit by a Tesla than a Ford, which some days I'm like, hit me, pay my college loans, you know? Uh, <laughs> like, the, you know, God works in mysterious ways. And so, um, as the saints say. But that's the city I live in. And so my city, we're about the hustle. We're about the grind. We keep going. And we're not as bad as Los Angeles or New York, so no one would really say it. But truthfully, our God is success. And so people in my city, we work late. We're not very social. There's the Seattle freeze, which basically people come here and they think you're friendly, but we're known for being a city that actually we don't get close, probably because we're just too busy. My city's idle success. What about yours? I remember coming to Portland to stay for a few days um, a couple years ago, and um, I love the food here. It's fantastic. I talk about it every time, and I'm not even a foodie, but it's just that freaking good. And, um, but I do remember um, coming to Portland and eating and enjoying it. But I remember by like the second day I was in Portland, and all of a sudden it was like I had, there was this pull on me. 
I don't know how else to explain it, and maybe you've just lived here too long to notice it, but I came to the city, and I just wanted to do more, and I wanted to like, have more good food and try more things and buy more things and do more things. And I started to realize that the God of this city is pleasure. Where if you take enough time to look around, this is a city of hedonism. It's a city where it's about you, get yours, do yours, enjoy life, eat everything, have a new experience, go for it. And sure, we don't worship at a temple that might be a building, but maybe we just look at our credit card statements and we see what we're worshiping. And all of a sudden, this idea of Gentiles, of people serving other gods, gets real. And it gets close. It gets personal. And what does Jesus do to people who serve other gods? How does he interact with them? Well, the Bible says that in Matthew chapter 15, that Jesus, he goes and he sits on a mountain, which all of a sudden, if you've read Matthew, that should ring off a thousand bells. It should take you back to Matthew chapter five, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says that seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened up his mouth and he taught them, saying, and he started saying, blessed are this. And he started to explain what the kingdom of God is like. Friends, um, one of my friends, he's an awesome guy, and he, um, we had him out at Northwest a couple weeks ago to, talk, to share and preach. And he explained what the kingdom of God is like. And he actually used his family. And he just said, you know, my kids know, and he's young, young boys, he goes, my kids know when dad's in charge and when mom's in charge. He was talking about this experience where mom like, needed a mom, like she needed a mom night. So like, he's like, honey, girl, I got this. I got the babies. You go out, do your thing. Like, here's some money. Enjoy your night. And then like an hour in, he's like, you need to get home immediately. Like, babe, like help. I don't know what I'm doing. And to the point where, her, where his oldest son looked at him and goes, yeah, things are kind of different when mommy's not home. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> the kingdom of God is what life is like when dad's in charge. The kingdom of God is what life is like when God is in charge. And Jesus sits on a mountain and starts to explain what the kingdom of God is like. And so you get to Matthew chapter 15 and you expect him, he's sitting on a mountain, crowds are coming, you expect him to do the same thing, to teach about what the kingdom of God is like. But instead, he does something quite different in this situation. It doesn't say that he taught, most likely he did, but it says that he began to heal. It says that the people, the crowd started to bring the blind and the lame and the mute all to Jesus. And Jesus would heal. It actually says that he threw, they were throwing them, like yeet. They were throwing them. That was for college students. They were throwing people at Jesus' feet over and over and over again. And Jesus healed them all to the point where it said that like amazement fell over the crowds and they began to praise the God of Israel. Now at risk of like over allegorizing the scripture, um, can I just say to this church and this community, could you imagine what it would be like if the city of Portland knew they could walk into Bridgetown and know that they would get healed. Just think about that. What if people knew that even if they serve another God, even if they were on the outside, they could come here and before they even knew what they were being taught about, they would get healing and they'd get freedom and they'd get deliverance and they'd get breakthrough. Could you imagine what that would be like for this city and this community if people walked in the doors and healed, 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 healed? What would happen? They would give glory to the God of Israel. They'd give glory to Yahweh himself. Before they even fully know about him, they do that. Have you ever experienced like God's miraculous touch? I mean, let's just be honest for a moment. Most of us aren't followers of Jesus because someone taught us just about Jesus. At least for me, I'm not a follower of Jesus just because someone informed me about him. No, I follow Jesus because he met me 
I experienced him. I experienced his power. I experienced his love. I experienced his healing, his breakthrough. Is anybody else like me in that regard? Where Jesus has come and met you where you're at and you felt the presence of God for yourself and you go, this is more than idea or philosophy or a teaching or religion. This is a person himself. Like God somehow met me. Have you experienced that? The joy that that brings and the hope and the restoration that that brings. I remember being in Montana a few years ago and we were doing this worship night with these camp students. And if you ever went to summer camp with youth group, I love summer camp. And my favorite person at summer camp is the like, the like junior boy who's just like no, wants nothing to do with Jesus. He's just too cool for everything. And like people are in worship doing hand motions and everything. And he's just like, nah. And I love that guy. I love that guy so much. And I was just like, man, my, I pray God you would meet that guy this week. And I remember one of those guys was in the room and all the week, first night, nothing, second night, nothing, third night, nothing, fourth night, nothing. But I remember the last night we were praying for people who were sick and I think he had a cast because the games were crazy dangerous. And, uh, and so lawsuits waiting to happen. You can't do, you get away with things in Montana. I'll tell you what. And so um, it's for real. My friends from Montana will hear this and they'll be like, yep. And, um, but I remember him wearing a cast and someone prayed for him. We prayed for him. And all of a sudden he said he felt something in his arm and he took off the cast and it was healed. I've seen people, and I've prayed for people, girls and guys who've cut their scars and cut, cut their wrists with scars, and I've watched them disappear. I've seen tears flood people's eyes because Jesus meets people in their bodies. Why? Because we don't just need a God who's out there as an idea. We need a living encounter with a reality and a presence. And what if we as the church were that? Where people actually, we took seriously that we're the hands and feet of Jesus. That everywhere we go, we touch people, and there's healing, and there's life. That's what people need. That's what our church needs. That's what our community needs. And that's what's happening here in this text. Now, that's a really simple, like, overview of what's happening in Matthew 15. But I think there's more. Truthfully, this is one of those passages that I've read and I've heard so many times that I just kind of gloss over it because, you know, you're like, oh, he's healing people again. He's doing his thing again. It's a free day on the Devo. But really, there's something else. Matthew, who's writing this all throughout his whole gospel, constantly keeps alluding to what Jesus is fulfilling Keep saying that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. Jesus did that. Jesus did this. And everything that Jesus did is actually connected to what's been said and longed for and hoped for for years and years and years. Jesus is the fulfillment of so many hopes, specifically hopes found in Isaiah. And so what I want to do, have you actually ever, um, maybe a good way to explain this, have you ever seen those pictures that are like optical illusions or multi-layered? Here, I think we have one. Um, have you ever seen this before? We're like, okay, so you, there's two things going on. How many of you see the young woman looking away? Hands, let me see, yeah. Okay, how many of you maybe see the old woman that's kind of looking out? Yeah, awesome. There's like multiple layers. Okay, just put that away. Um, there's multiple layers within one picture. And I think that's what Matthew's doing here. There's multiple layers of what's going on. Jesus is not just one thing happening. There's a second layer, and it actually comes out of Isaiah chapter 29. And this is what um, Matthew is starting to talk about. He says, on that day... The deaf will hear the words of a document, and out of a deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The humble will have joy after joy in the Lord, and the poor people will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless one will vanish, the scorner will disappear, and all those who lie in wait with evil intent will be killed. Those who with their speech accuse a person of wrongdoing, who set a trap for the one mediating at the city gate, and without cause, deprive the righteous of justice. What's going on here? Well, Isaiah is prophesying and calling out and longing for a day when God will show up and God will bring healing and restoration. What happens when God shows up? First of all, it says that the deaf will hear and the blind will see. When God shows up, physical healing happens. One more time. When God shows up, bodies are healed 
They're restored. They're set free. We have such a good God. But not only that, not only when God shows up does he heal the individual and meet people where they're at individually, it actually is saying that God also shows up and meets people on a societal level. It says the humble will have reason to rejoice. A better word maybe to say is not just the humble, the lowly or the afflicted. The people in society that are low. It says that the poor will have reason to have joy again. Have you walked for more than five minutes outside of this church building and seen the poor? See the people who often are lowly, who are unseen, who get walked around, who probably aren't known for having joy and delight. And Isaiah longs for the day and promises that when God shows up, that the poor will have reason for rejoice. There'll be renewal and life in the city. Not even just that, it even says that the people at the city gates, and he explains this thing where there's people who lie in wait or who wanna set a trap for those mediating at the city gate. What is that? Well, outside the city gates back in this day in antiquity, there would be all the elders and the leaders and the rulers of a city would sit outside of the city gate. So there's people going in and out, there's commerce happening. And then the rulers, the elders would sit at the city gate and they would rule the courts or judge there. So what's, what's Isaiah saying? He's saying there's people who set traps for those who judge at the city gate. Essentially this, there's people who perpetuate injustice in our cities. The courts aren't just anymore. I ever felt that. And he says, when God shows up, even the courts will be just again. Isn't that hopeful? Isn't that beautiful? To think that when God shows up and steps in and intervenes in human history, that the bodies will be healed and societies will be restored. Isn't that something that we, not, not only us as followers of Jesus long for, but that all of Portland really wants? Isn't that the hope our whole city actually longs for and desires? This isn't just for us. This is for the Gentiles too. It's a hope for our whole city. Isaiah was waiting for the day when God would set things straight because truthfully, family, things aren't as they should be. Ever thought that or felt that? Things aren't as they should be. Have you ever looked at the world or the city or maybe your life and felt like things aren't as they should be? Have you ever watched sickness take over the body of someone you love? Have you ever just been sick yourself and in your own body you just go, this isn't what life is about. This isn't right. Something about me doesn't feel at home or rest in my own body. I was thinking about the coronavirus, which I think, um, I think on the news they were saying over 69,000 people have, um, have, they found cases in over 69,000 people and over 1,600 people have died. And I was just going, I'm trying not to be so far removed from it, but I'm just going, really, another disease in the world? Another one? Do you have a friend or a family member with cancer? And you just go, I, we still haven't beaten this? Is this still a problem? We're still not there yet? Have you ever noticed and looked at the streets of the city and just go, man, poverty's still rampant and the poor don't have reason to rejoice and we're not really there yet? Have you ever looked at the, the courts or the government or the way our cities run and just go, we're not quite there yet? This isn't what life should be like. This isn't what home should be like. If you ever ask those questions or have said those things, you understand what the Bible talks about with exile. To be in exile is to no longer be home. It's really the story of the Bible. If you're basically page three, we have this story of man just trying to get back home again, going the world we're in and the cities we build, they're nice and all, but they're not home yet. 
They're not everything we long for and everything we need. We're just not home yet. We're not there. If you, and even when we try to build homes, and even when Israel goes back to Jerusalem, they're still not fully home. It's not what it's supposed to be. God, where are you and what are you doing? Home doesn't feel like home because home is the place where you're supposed to, you're supposed to feel safe. Home is the place where all your relationships are supposed to be healthy. Home is the place where you're supposed to let your hair down, (laughs) where you can wear the stretchy pants because you can eat what you want without shame. Home is where there's no more shame. There's no guilt. You're free. You're at rest. Home is when you're not worried about, where you're not worried about paying the rent anymore. Home is where you're not supposed to be worried about just keeping food on the table for your family. Home doesn't always feel like home. And it's to this question, to this tension that Isaiah, and to this hope that God would one day bring us home. The hope of Isaiah is that God is coming one day to bring us home. God's gonna bring us, wait, God, God he's gonna show up and bring us home? God wants to bring us home. I mean, life, and it, it doesn't feel like that all the time. I mean, just hold your breath for a second. You'll be okay. But like, just think about even the phrase, make America great again. You're going to be okay, Portland. Just take a second and breathe. <laughs> but even the phrase, make America great again, if you would just look past the politics and politicians just for a moment and even listen through and between the words, there, someone's saying, home isn't that great. We're not home yet. I'm longing for a great home. I want home to be home. Again, we're so far from home. And truthfully, we're struggling to get there. No leader is getting us there. No person on our own is getting us there. We're just not home yet. And it's to that question and to that frustration and to that tension that Isaiah sees a solution. God will rescue his people and bring them. God will rescue his people and bring them home. Just a few pages later in Isaiah 35, he says, say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Are you hearing what he's saying? He's saying the people whose mouths are closed, the mute, they're not just gonna talk, they're gonna sing when God shows up. The lame aren't just going to get up and walk. No, God goes over and above. The lame are going to leap for joy. When God shows up, things change for individuals and for societies, for societies, for the better. It says, the redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee. Don't you long for that in our city and for our lives and for our homes and for our bodies that God would bring us home? And so Isaiah prophesies, and Matthew picks up on this, that one day God is going to bring his people home. Isaiah clues up, or Matthew clues in on this so much so that he says the word became flesh, that God is showing up in a baby, divinity wrapped up in skin. He'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew makes a crazy claim that Jesus deeply believes about himself, that Jesus is here as God rescuing and saving his people, bringing them out of exile and back home. Jesus is what we would call in the Bible, the Messiah, the one who is the king of the nations, the king of the world, the Christ, the guy who's going to bring everybody back home. 
He's going to bring them home. Wait, wait a second. Could you imagine how baffled that must have made people feel? Like, wait, this isn't just a man. This isn't just a teacher. This is, wait, it's claiming to be God? Wait, God is here in human form in such a weird way of showing up. God shows up in such a weird, interesting way, a way that I wouldn't show up. But God's going to show up and he's going to bring us home? And what happens that Matthew says, it says, the deaf start to hear and the lame begin to walk and the deformed are restored and the mute begin to speak. All the things that Isaiah talked about, Matthew saying, you're seeing it here and now. Why? Because God is here and he's working and he's alive and he's powerful and he's coming to rescue and he's coming to bring us out of exile. He's coming to bring people home, which makes us consider one thing real quick for us in this city, in this moment right now. We have to consider and be careful of misunderstanding who Jesus claims to be because Jesus does not show up and just claim to be a teacher. I mean, we need Jesus as a teacher. Yes, amen? We need Jesus to instruct, to teach us, to show us the way. But if he's just a teacher, he really can always only point us to where we need to go. But if he's Messiah, he can lead us there himself. He's more than just a healer. Yes, we need a God to heal. Amen? Amen. But we need more than just a healer. We need someone who won't just pray for us once and heal us. We need someone who can bring back the dead to life. Jesus claims to be something so much more than a healer, so much more than a thinker or a teacher. He claims to be the king of the nations, the savior of the world, the one who is going to bring people home. Every hope that we long for here in this room, every hope of our city outside is met in Jesus. Jesus claims to be the answer to every need and hope for our cities and our homes and our communities. He's going to bring us home. He's going to bring us home. So much so that Eugene Peterson, he paraphrases what Isaiah says, and it'll be on the screen. Listen to this, Isaiah 35. God's resplendent glory, fully on display. God awesome. God majestic. Energize the limp hands. Strengthen the rubbery knees. Tell fearful souls courage. Take heart. God is here, right here, on his way to put things right and redress all wrongs. He's on the way. He'll save you. Blind eyes will be opened, deaf ears unstopped. Lame men and women will leap like deer. The voices, the voiceless breaking into song. Springs of water will burst out in the wilderness. Streams flow in the desert. Hot sand will become cool oasis. Thirsty ground, a splashing fountain. Even lowly jackals will have their water to drink and barren grasslands flourish richly. There will be a highway called the Holy Road. No one rude or rebellious is permitted on this road. Amen. It's for God. God's people exclusively. Impossible to get lost on this road. Not even fools can get lost on it. No lions on this road. No dangerous wild animals. Nothing and no one dangerous or threatening. Only the redeemed will walk on it. The people God has ransomed will come back on this road. They'll sing as they make their way home to Zion. Unfading halos of joy encircling their heads. Welcomed home with gifts of joy and gladness as all sorrows and sighs scurry into the night. Jesus claims to be more than a teacher, more than a healer, more than a thinker, more than a religion, more than a philosophy, more than an ideology, more than a self-help plan. Jesus claims to be the king of the nations and the savior of the world, which begs the question, why should I trust him? I mean, that's a pretty big claim. Like, if you're claiming to be the king of the nations, the king of the world, the one who's going to bring us all home, why should I trust you? Ever asked that? Ever wondered that? I think it's a fair question to ask. I think what we have to do is do what we do with basically any ruler or any politician or any person. And Jesus, he's so much, he's not even a politician, which is so great, so much better. 
But we have to do to Jesus and hold Jesus up to the same way we hold anyone else. First of all, why should I trust Jesus? Well, first of all, hear what King Jesus has to say. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 32, what we read earlier, what does Jesus say off of his own lips? Jesus says, I have compassion. What a king. Wait, you're, I mean, kings are powerful, right? Kings have power just with a snap of a finger. You can do anything you want, have anything you want, go anywhere you want. Kings are supposed to be smart. And if he's God, he's omniscient. He's a God who's powerful. He's a God who's smart. But when he explains who he is out of his own lips, the thing he wants his people to know is, I have compassion. Do you realize the posture of Jesus is not just power, it's not just omniscience, it's compassion? Could you imagine what that would do for us if every situation in our lives, we filtered it through the lens, not if God, if you're powerful, not God, if you see it, but God, you're compassionate. Oh, and I know that because you're compassionate, you'll meet me where I'm at. And I know that your posture towards me isn't frustration. It's not uptight. It's not impatient. It's not in a hurry. It's not worried. It's not frustrated. It's compassionate. Compassionate being, compassion being something more than just a feeling or an emotion and actually being the visceral, the response to deep love, affection, and the ability to meet a need. Compassion doesn't just see a need and pity it. It doesn't just see people and sympathize. No, it actually is the power that enacts and makes change. To say you're a compassionate person is not to just say that I feel for you. It's actually step into the need and meet it. Jesus is compassionate. He steps into the need. The second thing he says, and he says it to his disciples which is interesting to me. Jesus first says, I'm compassionate. And then his disciples walk over to him and they ask him this question, and which, which must trigger something in their minds. They go, okay, so how are we supposed to feed all these people? Which you see what's going on? The disciples of Jesus understand that Jesus' compassion demands that his disciples act. Let me say that one more time for the followers of Jesus in the room. Jesus' compassion demands that his disciples will act and feed and take care of the Gentiles of their area. What does that call us to do? And as Bethany taught so well a few weeks ago, months ago, on the feeding of the 5,000, it really means that we take the loaves and the fish, we take the resources, we use what God puts in our hand, we give it to Jesus and extend ourselves to the hands and feet of Christ in our city. Maybe our city needs some people who respond to Jesus' question or Jesus' call of his disciples to say, you feed them. You give them something to eat. Second thing Jesus says. The third thing he says, and he says this to the crowds, and it's so interesting and beautiful. He tells the crowds to sit down. Sit down. Now, this isn't just a command like my grandma would do when it's time to eat. Boy, sit down. No, this is something so much better. It actually translates uh, a little bit better to sit back, recline at the table. He could have used a different word to sit, but he actually used a word that actually means to sit down and recline at the table. You know what that tells me? It tells me that our God, Jesus, his posture is compassion. And that means that people's posture is to be reclined. If Jesus is compassionate, I don't have to be uptight. People don't need to be upset. People can actually sit back and recline. Why? Because Jesus is going to feed them. Recline, sit back. Recline at the table, and what does he do? He feeds them. He feeds over 4,000 people. He feeds them. What a God. Where he tells them to sit, and he feeds. You know, 
Jesus later explains the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. And commentators will speculate and say that Jesus isn't just feeding people. What he's doing is he's actually foreshadowing the messianic banquet that is to come. The day that's coming where all people that have trusted in him will sit down at home and finally eat. Even think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Do you realize that just a few verses earlier, there was a Canaanite woman who was looking for just a little bit of bread. And Jesus feeds this group of Gentiles with some bread. But not only that, he later explains later, he says, oh, you guys came for the food of the 5,000 or for the 4,000, because actually what you really need is the bread that comes down from heaven. And he actually calls himself the bread of life, the food that people really need. And he says, take, and if you would eat of me, if you would ingest me, if you would take me into your life as the core of who you are, if you would begin to take my life as your own, let that be your new source, you'll never go hungry again. Jesus is the bread that just keeps on giving and we don't hunger. Or as Matthew says in 15, they were all satisfied. But not just that, Jesus later eats out a different meal towards the end of Matthew. And he gives his disciples another piece of bread. And he says, take this. And he breaks it as a picture. He says, I'm the bread of life and this is like my body. And my body's going to be broken for you. Why should we trust Jesus? Well, we hear what he says, but we see what he does. And what does Jesus do? Jesus allows himself to be the bread that's broken for you and I. Or as Matthew even pictures it, Jesus becomes the lamb that's exiled and sent away from the community. He's exiled and sent out of the city gates. It's exiled and sent out and away from home. And it's slaughtered outside the city gates. It's slaughtered outside of home to pay the price, to ransom and redeem and bring back people who were so far lost and couldn't bring themselves back. Jesus brings people out of exile at his own expense. Why should you trust King Jesus to rule the nations? And more importantly, why should you trust King Jesus to rule your life? Because he's the only king who'll take care of you at his own expense. So much so that he'll die to make sure his people are fed and that they're brought back home. Even as we sang Waymaker earlier. He's a waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, and the light in the darkness, my God, and that is who you are. And you think about that Jesus. He's keeping every promise that was foretold about him. He's answering every prayer, every prayer and every hope that was prayed to him. Which can give us faith and courage now, family to keep asking and to keep seeking and to keep knocking, knowing that our God will always take care of us. We'll leave satisfied. The Bible is a story that says our great problem is that we're in exile. We're away from home. We're longing for home. And the truth is on our own, we can't get back. Not good enough, not strong enough, not smart enough, not powerful enough. We can't build societies that bring us back home. And what we need And what we actually have is a God who brings us home at his own expense. And friends, that's not just good news. That's a good God. That's not just good news. That is a good God.